Welcome to episode 112 of The Way of Improvement Leads Home. We are glad you have joined us. Have you ever heard someone say that they were spiritual but not religious? Our guest today, Boston University's Stephen Prothero, offers what might be called a history of this phenomenon. Indeed, as James Grossman, the executive director of the American Historical Society, often says, everything has a history. According to Prothero, the move from traditional, institutional, or confessional religion to spirituality ran through the publishing industry. And at the center of this mid-20th century transition was Eugene Xman, the religion editor at Harper and Row from 1928 to 1965. As Prothero writes, One evening in Ohio in 1916, as a teenage farm boy was riding past the town cemetery, his horse reared back and whinnied, and X-Men saw God. For the rest of his life, he strived to recreate that moment, a journey that led him to the Harper Religious Book Department, which he would turn into the country's top religion publisher. X-Men was indeed a spiritual seeker. And he published authors who shared his quest for God. Throughout the course of his career at Harper, he published controversial preacher Harry Emerson Fosdick, Catholic radical Dorothy Day, civil rights mystic Howard Thurman, and Nobel laureates such as Albert Schweitzer and Martin Luther King Jr. His books, according to Prothero, advanced an increasingly urgent vision of the United States as a place where denominational boundaries are blurred, diversity is valued, and the only creed is that individual spiritual experience is the essence of religion. Stay tuned. This is going to be a really interesting interview. Steve will be with us in a moment, but first, let's take care of some business. Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net and check out some of our fellow network podcasts. This free podcast is brought to you through the patrons of Current, an online journal of commentary and opinion that provides daily reflection on contemporary culture, politics, and ideas. We keep this going by your generous financial donations. And if you like what you hear, or read at Current and want to support our work. And again, that includes this bi-monthly podcast, our daily opinion features, the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog, and our new blog, The Arena, and even our narrative podcast on the history of evangelicals and politics. Then head over to currentpub.com and click the red membership button. We'd love to have you as part of our community of readers and thinkers and writers. The best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. You can follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast. That's on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at John Fia, J-O-H-N-F-E-A-1. Or you can follow Current on Twitter at Current underscore pub one. And we're also on Facebook. If you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet. And consider a positive review on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Stephen Prothero is the C. Allen and Elizabeth V. Russell Professor of Religion at Boston University, specializing in American religions. A historian of American religions, Professor Prothero has written a dozen books, including The White Buddhist, The Asian Odyssey of Henry Steele Olcott, that was published in 1996 with Indiana University Press. And that book won the Best First Book Award of the American Academy of Religion in 1997. Prothero is also the author of American Jesus, How the Son of God Became a National Icon. That book was named one of the top religion books for 2003 by Publishers Weekly. It was published, by the way, by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Two of Prothero's recent projects are the New York Times bestseller, Religious Literacy, What Every American Needs to Know and Doesn't. That was published in 2007 with Harper One. And his God is Not One, The Eight Rival Religions That Run the World and Why Their Differences Matter. That book was also published by Harper One in 2010. In addition to Stephen Prothero's scholarly work, which includes peer-reviewed articles in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, Prothero has written for a variety of popular magazines and newspapers, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Newsweek, Slate, Salon, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and the Boston Globe. He has commented on religion on NPR and on such television programs as The Colbert Report, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, The Oprah Winfrey Show, The O'Reilly Factor, and The Today Show. Our interview today, however, is based on his recently released book, it was released in March 2023 with Harper One, titled God the Best Seller, How One Editor Transformed American Religion, a Book at a Time. Our guest today is Stephen Prothero. He is the author of God, the bestseller, how one editor transformed American religion, a book at a time, hot off the press. I think it's March. It was published with Harper One. Stephen, I've been a big fan of your work for a long time, and it's an honor to talk to you today. It's great to be on your show. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I got taken in right away by the opening story of Eugene X-Men's uh, encounter with God in front of this Baptist church. But then just when I thought I got taken in on that part, then I got to the, I guess, the introduction or maybe the preface where you actually told the story of how you sort of started writing this book and got interested in Eugene X-Men. Can you give us a kind of short elevator speech about that incredible research find and how <laughs> it all came about? Sure. Well, I, I was at a Labor Day party about 10 years ago and then uh, elderly woman came up to me and said that her father had a lot of religion books, Would I come by the house and look at them. And I live in New England and I actually get a lot of these requests. And typically I go and it's a bunch of old Bibles or a bunch of old hymnals, not of particular interest to anyone. It's maybe even especially to a historian of American religion. So I kind of put it off, but uh, finally I called her uh, she had had a family tragedy. I called back a few months later. She had actually passed away. And I talked to her husband and he invited me over to the house. And when I got there, the first thing that surprised me when he took me into the library was that most of the books were 20th century books. I expected them to be 19th century, maybe even 18th century. 
I looked at the religion section that they wanted me to look at. And the first book I pulled off was Stride Toward Freedom by Martin Luther King. His first book, first edition, I open it up and inside there's a letter from Coretta Scott King. And it says, Dear Gene, you know, thank you. I'm not quoting directly now, but, you know, thank you so much for your support for the cause of peace, justice and brotherhood in the United States and for coming down to Montgomery to convince Martin to write his first book. So I was really hoping I was going to get in and out of there in about a, in about a half an hour. And all of a sudden, I'm totally hooked. And I start looking more at the library. And I see the first book of AA, the big book of AA. I open that up. And inside it is, and it's a large format book. And inside it, there's this long inscription from who? The co-founder of AA, Bill Wilson, to Gene. Again, uh, thank you so much for the huge role you played in the writing of the big book and in the foundation of our movement. I can't thank you enough. And so there I've looked at two books and I'm thinking, who the heck is this guy? I'm a historian of American religion. I focus on the 19th and 20th centuries. I've never heard of Eugene Xman. He is apparently a friend and editor publisher of Martin Luther King and in some way of, of Bill Wilson. So I just start looking around more and more books, more and more inscriptions, more and more letters inside the books from the most important uh, pastor in 20th century America until Billy Graham and Martin Luther King, uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick. You know, five letters inside one book by Fosdick, books by and about uh, Albert Schweitzer, who it turns out X-Men also uh, published. Uh, many other people, uh, Brave New World author uh, Aldous Huxley. And so I turn to the son-in-law, his son-in-law, and I say, you know, these books are interesting, but do you have any papers? And he sort of, you know, rolls his eyes back and he says, oh my God, this family never threw anything away, which of course, as you know, you know, as a historian, <laughs> that's what you want to hear. And so over the next six months to a year, I would just get calls every two, three weeks from uh, Walter Kess, which is his name, the son-in-law's name. And he would bring out a couple boxes of stuff he found out in his barn. And I would sit down with them and go through them. And as I did, I found out this guy was the publisher of religion books at Harper and Brothers from 1928 to 1965. And there had been some scholarly work about him. Uh, Matt Hedstrom at University of Virginia had a chapter in a book that I had, had not seen before I went over, over to the house. But there really wasn't much other work uh, other than that. And there certainly wasn't any work that was based on the kind of archive that I was eventually able to find, which included tens of thousands of, of letters about his publishing career. Fascinating. We'll get more into this in a second. I love the story. I haven't had this experience yet, but I love the story of you kind of planting yourself. What was it in the dining room or something for a brief period of time? Yeah, that's right. He just set me up in the dining room and he'd bring down boxes of books and boxes of papers and I'd just go through them. And eventually he said, you know, can you just take this yeah. stuff home? And so I had the archive at my house for, for many years. That's incredible. Let's get into the content a little bit. One of the people that's kind of comes up over and over again in almost every chapter. I mean, you, your chapters are largely based on the various different authors that X-Men work with, not entirely, but largely. And it seems like in every chapter, well, I think it's true in every chapter, this 1902 book, which some of my listeners might be familiar with, some may not, William James's The Varieties of Religious Experience. This seems to be a kind of book that not only drives X-Men, but also seems to have deeply influenced some of the authors that he signs up with. It becomes kind of a thread throughout the book. So 
to what extent is this a book about William James's influence on 20th century American religion? I think it is to a great extent. And this is, you know, Matt, Matt Hedstrom, who wrote that chapter, also wrote a book chapter or an article, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, about the popularization of James by X-Men and, and by others in the 20th century. And the more I read through the papers, the more I saw that to be true. The key letter that I, I saw initially was a letter that X-Men had written to his daughter. She was studying at Denison College, where X-Men had also gone, and she was taking a psychology course. And the professor was attacking a lot of the authors that X-Men had published. They were, these were people who were interested in parapsychology and channeling and, and that kind of stuff. And this, this guy just thought of them all as quacks. And so she wrote this letter, actually not to her dad, but to her mom and said, mom, you know, can you talk to dad? I don't really know what to do in this class. Should I drop it? What should I do? And so he writes back this letter and it's so great. It's this, you know, paternal letter. It's also about the virtues of college education, which of course I loved, but it's also about William James. And he says, listen, William James was the psychologist before rat psychology came in. And he was referring to, you know, laboratory driven psychological experiments. And he said, you really should read this book. It's called Varieties of Religious Experience. And maybe you can ask your professor if you can read it for credit in, in the class. And after I read that exchange between him and his daughter, I just started noticing over and over again, the ways that Dorothy Day, the ways that Harry Emerson Fosdick, uh, the ways that Martin Luther King were influenced either directly, but typically, uh, either indirectly, but typically directly by William James. And especially with this idea that religion is essentially personal rather than social, and that religion is about experience rather than about doctrine. And this is a key theme throughout X-Men's life. He would be at a retreat and people would start saying, you know, uh, oh, what about the incarnation? What about the Trinity? And he would just be like, stop. That's not why we're here. We're not here to argue about, about doctrine. We have people with a lot of different views about Christianity. We may even have at this retreat people who aren't Christians at all. Let's not do this. This has been done for millennia. We're here to talk about our own personal experiences. What can we learn from each other's experiences? And how can that learning contribute to our joint effort to see God, which is what he was, he was obsessed with. And so James was really behind so much of his interest in experience and his interest in mysticism, which had been cultivated from his own mystical experience very early on in his life. And James was really his guide and the person that he was really trying to introduce many of his American readers to, uh, as he did his publishing throughout his career. And one of the people who was also deeply influenced by James, who many of our listeners here would not know, I didn't know who she was, was Marguerite Bro. Where does she fit into this story? Like, who is she? And she's everywhere. It's almost, this could have almost been like a biography of her too, right? A dual biography. I mean, right. Well, the first time I gave a paper about this was to my colleagues at Boston University's religion department. And they said to me, many of them said, write about her. She, she's, fast, she's fascinating. Make the book about her. And uh, I hope someone does. Uh, there's, there's enough letters in this X-Men archive by her. There's over a thousand letters by her in this archive. There's enough there to write a book about her. Her family has some papers. I wasn't able to track them down. I got some of her papers from a grandson of hers, I believe. Uh, but she is an amazing woman. She came across X-Men's uh, desk or attention 
1943. She had been invited by Christian Century to review a book about the medium Edgar Casey, who was starting to get some traction in the United States in the early 40s. And she said, fine, I'll write the book review, but I need to go down to Virginia Beach where he is and see what he's doing. See, he's, he claims to be clairvoyant. He claims to have to see people's past lives. I'm an empiricist. Uh, I need to go check it out. And so she does. She goes down there and she really becomes enamored of Edgar Casey. And she ends up writing to X-Men and saying, you know, dear Mr. X-Men, uh, there's this interesting guy. He really deserves a book, but I want to talk to you about him because I think he's worthy of, of your attention. And so that happens in the summer of 1943. And they meet pretty shortly thereafter, early in the fall of 1943. And from that point forward, she becomes very quickly his main book fixer, his main ghostwriter, his conscience in a way, uh, his inspiration for a lot of his own writing, the first editor for much of his, his own writing. And she, quite aside from her connection to X-Men, she publishes dozens of books. She publishes fiction and nonfiction. She has a novel that is still uh, in print. She writes for young adults. She writes for adults. She writes a lot of books on religion. She writes a book about uh, Indonesia because she had lived there. She was a missionary in China. So she has a lot of interest in Buddhism and other Asian religions. She's a dynamo and her letters are beautiful. She has a kind of nature religion sensibility. She's pushing him throughout his career toward these more new agey parapsychological uh, questions uh, that he does publish on, but not as much as she uh, would want him to. And they have a relationship all the way until um, the end of his life in 1975. Just as a teaser, I don't want you to go into this because I want people to get the book, but uh, you know, both of the bro and X-Men are both married. And there's some questions about all of this that you kind of tap into a little bit, which adds some kind of intrigue to this whole thing. And, and you, you write at the right time in the book, kind of address this because it's now got to the point I can't remember which chapter, but it gets to the point where everyone, I mean, at least me as a reader, everyone else must be asking, like, is there something more going on here? So there's the teaser. Don't, don't answer that. <laughs> you know, there is some uh, intrigue here. Let's move to Dorothy Day, which was, you know, one of my favorite chapters. Um, you know, as much as X-Men's story is about spiritual seeking and these kinds of things, this is also, you know, he's also a liberal Protestant. Right. I mean, he attends Fosdick's church in New York. And I think the chapter, his Protestantism or his kind of liberal Protestantism, even maybe his anti-Catholicism, which often came with this kind of liberal Protestantism. I remember you reading Christian Century articles in the 40s and 50s that were, you know, blatantly anti-Catholic, you know, about fear of Catholic takeover and so forth. This anti-Catholicism and this liberal Protestantism, this tension between X-Men's liberalism and Dorothy Day's deep-seated um, Catholicism kind of is a, a major theme in that Day chapter. Can you elaborate a little bit on that tension between you know, this liberal Protestant kind of middle-class, upper-middle-class New York publisher and this you know, socialist Catholic worker? fascinating juxtaposition between the two. Yeah. Well, you know, one of X-Men's 
preoccupations is what, with what we would now call religious pluralism, religious diversity. Over the course of his career, from the 20s to the 60s, he kept broadening what he was trying to do at Harper, where initially he's like, let's move beyond Protestant denominationalism to Protestantism. Let's move beyond Protestantism to Christianity. Let's move beyond Christianity to Buddhism and Hinduism, um, which he really has a strong publishing profile in the 40s and 50s in Buddhism and Hinduism. But as you know, it's kind of hard, maybe unless you're a Supreme Court justice, to shed the biases that come with your religious with your <laughs> religious faith. And, you know, part of his thing was organized religion is corrupt. Institutional Christianity is not where Jesus would be today if Jesus uh, came back. X-Men was a mystic. X-Men thought that with James, that religion was essentially personal. And when you are going to come up with examples as a liberal Protestant of the bad guys in the religious world, like you're going to go pretty quickly to popes and archbishops, Catholic archbishops and Catholic institutions and Catholic creeds and all that stuff. And so that comes up in tension with Day because Day as a convert to Catholicism really doesn't have much problem with Catholic dogma. She doesn't have a lot of problem with the Catholic hierarchy. She just wants them to leave her alone so she can do her houses of hospitality and, and care for the poor and find the face of Jesus in the poor whom she encounters on the streets of, of New York City. So, so in publishing with X-Men, her two autobiographies, uh, she keeps running into both X-Men and also X-Men's fixers. Um, book fixers of, you know, can't you just be a little less Catholic? You know, we want to sell books, you know, you want to spread your message. We want to spread your message. But if you're too Catholic here, then we're only going to sell the books to Catholics and we want to be able to sell it to all kinds of Christians and we want to be able to sell it to all kinds of people. So he's kind of pushing at her in this direction and she's sort of accepting it in certain ways, like, oh, he's the sage publisher. He knows what will sell. I want this book to sell. Um, I want the royalties, but I also want people um, reading the book. And so, yeah, these tensions kind of, kind of simmer. And it's actually, you know, I think the best example of this comes with a different book that X-Men is working on. Actually, Bro is working on, on a more day-to-day -day basis where, where she, Bro writes to the, uh, this woman whose autobiography she is ghostwriting and says, you know, okay, so you're talking about these prayers and you all are praying to the baby Jesus. You know, do you have to pray to the baby Jesus? I mean, can't you pray to the grown-up Jesus? Like Protestants don't really pray to the baby Jesus. And we don't want to turn off a bunch of our readers. It sounded a little bit like, what's the Will Ferrell movie, um, Talladega Nights, where they're sitting around the, the table. Baby Jesus. Yeah, and he wants to pray to the baby Jesus. His wife's like, could you stop? It was a yeah. lot like that. It was a lot like that and almost as funny. And so anyway, yeah, so there was a tension there. And there are also tensions between X-Men's own life, which, as you say, you know, he would he would go to the Century Club and he became an upper middle class, you know, person. He started as an Ohio farm boy with no money at all, but he becomes an upper middle uh, class person. He wants to get the grace and favor of his superiors at Harper and Brothers and later uh, Harper and Rowe. And he has solidarity in some ways with Dorothy Day, but he's not. He's not, you know, living a, a kind of street street level life in New York City in the way that she is. And so the tensions there, you know, as you, you know, point out, are also between kind of socialism and and capitalism, which yeah. wasn't particularly fond of, but he was certainly enmeshed with. Yeah. Let me follow up on that. 
I'll just speak for myself here, right? As a scholar or as someone who writes or as a historian, I always get this nagging sense of you want to change the world and do something, but then you run into like this person like Dorothy Day or someone who's like literally doing the work that you're writing about and telling everyone else they should be doing, right? That juxtaposition between, uh, you know, writing about something and then doing it. And there are a few scholars who are able to kind of bridge that, you know, it's an issue of calling, I think, and, you know, vocation and all those kinds of things. But I sense that tension as well, often in X-Men, right? Especially, it really comes out, I think, to me in the Albert Schweitzer chapter, where, you know, Schweitzer's kind of gave it all up, you know, musician, New Testament scholar, you know, to become a jungle doctor in the Congo, and X-Men goes to visit him. And there's so there's this tension between the kind of upper middle class New York professional kind of intellectual world that that X-Men lives in. He wants to seek God. He wants to be of service to God in some way. And then he encounters Schweitzer. So maybe you could elaborate again on that kind of it's a similar tension, right? Yeah, it's a similar tension. And, you know, I think I've alluded a couple of times to this mystical experience X-Men had as a 16 year old boy. But this is germane to the, the Schweitzer story because he. He has this experience while he's driving to a Bible study uh, with his horse from the farm. And all of a sudden, he he describes it in various ways, including in his own unpublished autobiography, autobiographical fragments, where he feels lifted up. He sees a white light. He looks up and he sees God. And he feels in classic Jamesian fashion, he hadn't read James yet, that he had learned something. And what he had learned is that God existed and he would never question God again. And so, as I interpret his life, the rest of his life, he's trying to make sense of that experience. He doesn't understand what happened to him. And so, he seeks out other mystics, other people who had these experiences. And then he also publishes them. And he says, write about this, write about your experiences. I want to read about them because I can learn something from them. And so, he is again, like James, going after religious geniuses who have some kind of connection, direct connection to God. And he sees Schweitzer as one of them. And for him, mysticism is not withdrawal. In fact, also in Jamesian fashion, he believes that if you claim to be a mystic, you claim to have encountered God, and you then just go and live your life, and it doesn't affect you politically and socially, then we have reason to suspect that that encounter actually uh, happened. And so, Axman was very keen on opposing militarism, very keen on opposing materialism. And he saw Day as a as someone walking his path as a pacifist. And he saw Schweitzer as a kind of modern day renunciant as walking that anti-materialist path as well as the anti-warfare you know, path. And so, he goes to Africa. He has this long journey there. The journey starts with a fancy, you know, boat ride, I believe, on the uh, QE2, Queen Elizabeth, first, uh, first class, includes stopping in Europe for some shopping at Harrods, you know, nothing that is really very uh, Schweitzer-esque. But then he gets to Schweitzer's place and he's just sort of sitting at the feet of the guru, like hoping for time with him so that he can receive his sage wisdom. And then when he goes back, he becomes so enamored of Schweitzer that, that one of his friends jokes, like, I thought you were the Harper, you know, editor, but it seems like you have become the literary or the agent for Schweitzer in America, you know, publishing all these articles about him. You're, 
giving all these, you know, dozens and maybe hundreds of talks about Schweitzer uh, yourself to promote him. Before he even gets off the boat on the way home, he has met a steel magnet who agrees to send steel to Schweitzer so Schweitzer can properly put roofs on some new buildings that he's doing to extend his hospital. So he's really making efforts, philanthropic efforts to tap into his network to help Schweitzer, but he's not becoming a renunciant. I don't know that we should expect him to, but he certainly isn't. And, and he's coming home with fancy, you know, gifts for, you know, his wife from Harrods and, um, and having had a pretty nice uh, ride back too, again, in first class steerage uh, back to, back to the United States. So yeah, there's a tension there. Like there is tensions with Dorothy Day in his, with his sort of incipient anti-Catholicism. He's a complicated figure because then there's one point where his conversation, life conversation partner, uh, bro, kind of calls him out at one point for caring too much about ambition and rising in the company and you've lost your first love kind of thing. You're no longer seeking God, right? And I can't remember at what point in his life that happens, but there's this always, you know, he's a hard guy to nail down. It's pretty late in his career. Okay. and. She and he had discussed for many years. Let's get out of New. Let's get out of New York. You quit your job at Harper. We'll start a cooperative in the Midwest. Um, we'll be able to publish whatever we want. We'll be able to bring our Christian values, our religious values, more plainly into what we're doing. We'll be able to handpick everybody there. We can pray over the books, and we can be you know we can be together in some in some way in this uh, in this endeavor. And X Men at one point. He does this classic thing that, you know, I've done in my life where you, you make the list, you know, the pros and the cons. Should I do A? Should I do B? I forget the exact number, but he's basically like 16 reasons to go and start this cooperative and two or three reasons to stay and not do it. But he just can't do it. He can't do it. Like he can't leave the social status he's getting behind. He can't leave the salary that he's, he's getting um, at Harper. He can't leave the status of being on the board of directors at Harper and maybe the status of being on the board of directors at, you know, Riverside church, Fosdick's church in New York city. And so she becomes disappointed with him. She says, you could have been a saint, you know, in the Jamesian sense, you could have been a great man. What happened to you? And he writes her back. He, He drafts first, he drafts, and this is where, you know, I feel some common cause with him. He drafts this long letter to her like point by point refutation of the long points she had made in her five letter, single space type letter to him. And then he throws it away and he writes back this much shorter letter. And this time he says, you know what? You're right. I'm not a saint. I wish I were, but I'm not. And I wish I could live up to what you want me to be, but I can't. And that's how, that's how it is. And so I do see in some ways, his life as tragic in the sense that he really had a spiritual slash religious hope for it that really didn't quite pan out. And yet, because of his focus on his work and because of his interest in social status, he publishes hundreds and thousands of bestsellers that have a profound, uh, a profound influence over the course of U.S. religious history and, in fact, are huge shapers in the kind of ocean in which all of us swim now who are interested in religion and American culture. Uh, switching gears a little bit, X-Men publishes both Howard Thurman, 
And for those of you who are listeners out there, you may remember our interview we did maybe a year ago, maybe with Paul Harvey on his book on Thurman. I actually knew Peter Eisenstadt, the author of the other more substantial Thurman biography, when he was studying 17th century Dutch. I didn't know that. I read that book. It's a way that your careers just go different ways. He kind of had a, I remember he co-authored a really important essay in the William and Mary Quarterly with um, Patricia Bonamy on church attendance and so forth. And then I kind of lost track of him only to see him appear as a, as a Thurman biographer. But back to X-Men. X-Men published Howard Thurman and Martin Luther King Jr. And I think it's fair to say in reading your book, X-Men felt much more comfortable and had a better relationship with Thurman than he did with King. And it wasn't just personality um, wise. Um, and, and you make some larger points here about X-Men's kind of limits, at least on race, or as he saw race as a sort of systemic problem in American life. Uh, maybe you could expound on that a bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was really intrigued, you know, Boston University, where I teach has a connection yeah. King, both King and Thurman, you know, Thurman was a chaplain there, King did his PhD there. Um, and I think I, I puzzled a lot about this, why X-Men was so close to Thurman and Thurman so close to X-Men, but not with King. I mean, the obvious thing is King was a busy man, right? <laughs> he didn't have a lot of time for cultivating a lot of friendships with different people, especially people who really weren't in his, in the civil rights movement. That's an obvious one. But I think the other less obvious is that Thurman was essentially an, an interfaith person and X-Men was essentially an interfaith person. I mean, the broad project for Thurman wasn't so much civil rights, even though he's a mentor to a lot of people in the civil rights movement. He was there when King gave his I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C. When Thurman has, a, has his own mystical moment, when he's, he's traveled through India, he's in modern day Afghanistan, and what he sees of God there tells him to go and do an interfaith church. It doesn't tell him to go and do an interracial church, which he does do that, but he wants it to be an interfaith slash interracial uh, church. And I think that his preoccupation with, with, with learning on the basis of his own mystical experiences about other religions so they can inform his own personal relationship with God is very much X-Men's project. Uh, they're, they're both mystics. Um, now, King has a mystical at least one mystical moment that he writes about in one of X-Men's books. But Thurman is really more of a thoroughgoing mystic. He really reads the mystics. He, he gives sermons about the mystics. So I think, I think that was an, a really important uh, connection with the two of them. Also, X-Men and King kind of butted heads a little bit about the kind of class. I mean, X-Men was the classic white liberal that King writes about in Letter from a Birmingham Jail. You know, like, you guys are just sitting around like waiting for this thing to happen as if by magic, God is going to just, you know, wake up one day and decide to desegregate American society. And King informed by, you know, R Reinald Niebuhr and others says that that isn't how it works. You know, like politics works through coercion, you know, and you can still love someone and try to press them to do, to do the right thing. And there's, there's a place that um, when I was investigating, Stride Toward Freedom and X-Men's role in editing that. And I was able to find the original manuscripts at Boston University. And I, because I know X-Men's handwriting, I was able to see, as no other scholars have, have done, I was able to see exactly how X-Men tried to shape that first book and subsequent books by King. And it's a really interesting moment in the correspondence um, between King and X-Men 
uh, and others involved in, in, the, in the writing of that book that says where, where X-Men is saying, let's end the book on a thrilling, you know, ode to tolerance and forgiveness and that all humans are one, you know, and um, it's the classic thing, you know, you got to, you're going to jump over the reparations question. You're going to jump over the justice question. You're going to jump over all the hard questions about racism and lynching and Jim Crow and everything. And we're just going to somehow magically get to let's all hold hands and sing uh, Kumbaya. And King, to his credit, said, he didn't say this in the letters, but when you read how the book ends, the, the last paragraph of the, of the book is prophetic in the, in the Old Testament sense of if we don't do what God requires in terms of mercy and justice, the world is going to go up in flames. And it is not, it is not the hand-holding thing. It is a direct challenge to white liberals like X-Men and others that you need to do something. You need to join us in difficult conversations. You need to join us in risky politics. So yeah, so there's a place where X-Men bumps up more against King than he does against Thurman because Thurman isn't involved in the day-to-day -day working out of the civil rights struggle. Yeah, that's a great chapter. Our time's almost running out here, but you know, one of the longer chapters in the book where you cover a lot of ground, but I think it's essential, is the chapter on Alcoholics Anonymous. And I introduced the podcast by suggesting that your book may also be a history of the idea of, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. You know, a history of that kind of concept. And that really comes forth in, the, um, in that chapter on Alcoholics Anonymous, because it's really X-Men's work with Wilson I think your exact phrase here is that led him to, quote, gravitate from the term religious to the term spiritual as a kind of editor and as a thinker. So talk about the AA's role in kind of the move, not only in X-Men, but it seems like you're, you're extrapolating to a sort of larger, you know, AA played a significant role in this whole concept of like, I'm not a religious, I'm not an institutional or confessional religious person, but I'm certainly spiritual. Yeah. I really do, do think of the book as a kind of prehistory of yeah. the spiritual and religious people, sort of how did we get there? How did we get here from there? And of course, you can tell that story as you can tell the story about what I call the religion of experience through a lot of different players going back in American mm -hmm. history and back before American history, you can find inklings of those things. But I think X-Men plays a really important role in publishing all these books of his which I read as a kind of anthology that is a parallel anthology to the varieties of religious experience. If you, instead of taking the anecdotes that James is doing, you take the books that X-Men is doing. I think they amount to a kind of a book of books. Um, and I think in that, in that uh, book of books of X-Men's, there is this you know, powerful push away from institutional religion to personal spirituality. But there's also an increasing wariness to use the R word, to use the religion, religion word. And, and Wilson and the AA founders were out ahead of X-Men on this. Um, X-Men moved from, let's talk about Lutherans and Baptists, and instead, let's talk about religion. Like, we're not interested in Christianity, we're interested in religion. And that was a pluralistic move that X-Men made in the late 20s and the early 30s. But in the AA, 
debates about that book, the big book of AA, which was published in 1939. Initially, there were all these references to religion. Bill Wilson thought that in order to stop being a drunk, in order to stop drinking, you had to have an experience of God because that's what happened to him. He had a mystical experience and he and Exman talked about their shared mystical experiences. He had one of those experiences and he did not think you could get away from your drinking addiction uh, without a higher power, as they now call it, you know, without some, something other than you. Willpower would not do it. And so he had to include religion in the book. But then there were people involved with the book, including atheists, who were like, stop with the religion thing. Like, we, we don't just want religious people to stop drinking. We want all people to stop drinking. And then, and then, and then Wilson would say, fine, but those people have to have religion in order to stop drinking. Yeah. So they finally moved. He was finally convinced in the last, the last edits of the book to strike out almost all the religion references and change them to spirituality. So there you see an early example of what we now have in American culture today, where spirituality is a good word among many of my friends, and religion is a bad word among many uh, of my friends. There's a growing sense that you know, we want to not be religious, but we want to be spiritual. Spiritual, but not religious. That's, that's the debate that's being had in the late 30s. And X-Men carries that forward in his publishing you know, enterprise. If I remember correctly, right, wasn't Wilson even some type of an evangelical? So like, or something close, or he had a born again experience or something. And that, that was what the higher power was to him. But then he sacrificed this kind of more inclusive kind of understanding to, you know, the desire to get people off the bottle forced him to kind of expand his understanding of religion into this kind of super supernatural power or this higher power. Is that fair? Yeah, and I think, um, I'm not sure I would say he was an evangelical because okay. he doesn't really see Jesus in his mysticism, neither yeah. does X-Men. He sees God. So, Well, he's a Christian. He's a, yeah, he's a traditional he's, Christian, yeah. He's a Christian of sorts, but he very quickly moves. It's hard even to call X-Men a Christian in, in a sense in that yeah. when he's having debates with Jesus people, people who really think Christianity is about Jesus, he will always say, no, it's about God. And he wants there to be more solidarity with non-Christian people. And Wilson is doing the same. Wilson is, he wants to use language of God and then, but the language of God is tricky. So they go to higher power. They go, and this is James, right? I mean, James's definition of religion talks about, you know, as we under, as, you know, we see God, as we understand God, like really trying to avoid like any specific religious language, the, the, like specific nouns for, uh, for God. And that fuzziness is in, is in service of inclusivity. It's in service of diversity. And that is so much of, you know, for all the Christian nationalism there is in the United States, which you and others, you know, have written about, you know, rightly and worried about rightly, there is also a huge contingent of people who are what I would call, you know, and others, religious pluralists who think religions are essentially maybe the same, or at least they're complementary, and diversity is good. Um, we learn more from talking with people who aren't ourselves than we do with talking to a bunch of people, you know, who are ourselves. This is also Jamesian, right? Like, Jamesian pragmatism. So yeah, AA plays a really important role in, and Professor Ann Taves at University of California at Santa Barbara has played a really important role in helping me to see that the ways that AA is a kind of underappreciated mover and shaker in the history of modern American religion. And X-Men was very much in those conversations uh, with them from very early on. Well, it's a great book. I totally enjoyed reading it and 
I learned almost every page. I learned something. I had no idea who X-Men is coming in. I saw the book. I saw you give a talk online. I said, I got to read this thing and ask some questions. So thankful that you came on the podcast to talk about it. The book is God, the bestseller, how one editor transformed American religion, a book at a time. The author and our guest has been Stephen Prothero. Uh, Thanks again, Stephen. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. If you are into religious pluralism, religious diversity, this whole idea of spirituality, which so defines religious culture in certain ways today, go out and get a copy of Prothero's book, God, the Bestseller. There's so much about this book that was intriguing to me. I said at the beginning that that opening story about him just stumbling upon Eugene X-Men, you know, we as historians kind of all pray for kind of moments like that. And Prothero certainly had it. In this case, there's so many other things going on here. We didn't even talk about Harry Emerson Fosdick. Great chapter on him. I wanted to ask him right at the end, but we were running out of time. When X-Men and Wilson, the, the AA founder, kind of get together, they actually go on an LSD trip in which X-Men claims that he sees the devil. He sees Satan, Lucifer, and sort of shies away from LSD as a way of, of encountering God. And this happens well before, you know, the late, the sixties with Timothy Leary and so forth. So that's another interesting part of this. As I was teasing a little bit, the whole relationship with Margaret Bro, Prothero does a nice job of kind of uh, integrating that through the story. A lot of the tensions we were talking about, I found particularly interesting. So uh, go out and get a copy. Again, God, the bestseller. It is available through Harper One and, of course, at bookstores and booksellers online and brick and mortar as well. So, as always, thanks for listening. And may your way of improvement always lead home. The Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast is recorded via Zoom. Original music by Overholt. The co-founder of the podcast, who is now off doing bigger and better things, is Drew Durley Hermel. Our producer is Casey Lehman out of Nashville, and I, John Fia, am your host. <laughs>